Hello and welcome everybody wherever you are in the world. My name is Paul Ryan, I'm founder of PrescriptionRevision.com and I'm a GP and pharmacist based here in Ireland. I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics and really enjoy making the latest international guidance relevant to those of us at the coalface of primary care. So in today's podcast, I'm going to talk about the NICE 2021 draft guideline on chronic kidney disease. So in my previous podcast, I would have spoken about the 2014 NICE guidance. So obviously this is um, well received uh, in 2021. Um, I suppose the main, uh, just to talk first about the main changes, the most significant changes are the fact that we should use regular testing for chronic kidney disease in a broader range of of people so who are at risk so and you you need to use EGFR as well as your so bloods and urine I usually say so the bloods you look at the creatinine to gain the EGFR uh to, to work out the EGFR and also the urine albumin creatinine ratio okay those people are you know are those who are most at risk the diabetes people with diabetes and also hypertension so that's we're aware of these but also anyone with acute kidney injury any cardiovascular disease any structural renal tract disease so including benign prostatic hypertrophy and any multi-system disease with potential kidney involvement such as uh, SLE and also any family history of CKD or incidental finding of hematuria or proteinuria now, they also recommend referral uh, to a nephrologist on a patient's risk of developing renal failure. And we calculate this using the kidney failure risk equation. Now, if you go to kidneyfailurerisk.com, it's actually an easy scoring system once you have, you put in the patient's age, their EGFR, their albumin creatinine ratio, um, and their ethnicity, uh, as well as their gender. And it gives you a risk um it, it determines the risk over two years and over five years, uh, you know, of, of risk of uh, developing kidney failure. And it's freely available. So the final main point is the role of SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, these are in the draft guideline for chronic kidney disease, but they're only recommended as an option in addition to an ACE inhibitor or ARB in patients with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes if they have proteinuria with a raised AC ratio of greater than 30. And they're actually licensed for this condition and meet the appropriate, e- and if 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 they meet the appropriate EGFR threshold. So just depending on the EGFR, you can work out the dose, okay? And you, you, medicines.ie or the BNF then for that. Um, it will actually be interesting to see if this recommendation regarding the SGLT2 uh, inhibitors, if this changes with the final guideline due in summer 2021. Um, so, and I suppose just to go back to um, a recap over what um, what we know already about CKD and just, you know, to make, a, to make this guideline relevant to those uh, in primary care. So, the definition, what is chronic kidney disease? It's defined as an EGFR less than 60 mils per minute on two occasions, three months apart, or else a persistent AC ratio of greater than three milligrams per millimole. Now, if 
there is a first discovery of a low EGFR or raised creatinine and bloods. If the patient's well, you repeat the test within 14 days to exclude an acute kidney injury. Now, if the EGFR is stable, you repeat again at three months to see is it sustained. Now, that is the same guidance as it was in 2014, hasn't changed. If there's low EGFR, which is sustained for greater than 90 days, so for greater than three months, CKD is diagnosed. And then you need to perform an AC ratio, so bloods and urine, bloods and urine, all this. And if the AC ratio is greater than three milligram per millimole, you dipstick your analysis looking for, for hematuria. Now, what is the AC ratio? We know that the AC ratio is a risk factor for progression to nephropathy. If it's less than 3 mg per millimole, that's normal. If it's between 3 and 30 mg per millimole, it's moderately increased. This is confirmed with an early morning sample because the early morning sample is the most accurate. Now, if a patient is diabetic and has an an AC ratio of greater than 3 milligrams per millimole, they need an ACE inhibitor, even if they're normal tensive. And we know that if they're hypertensive and have an AC ratio of greater than 3 milligrams per millimole, we offer an ACE inhibitor, even if they're 55 years of age or older or, e or even Afro-Caribbean descent. Now, what if the AC ratio is greater than 30? That means it's severely increased. Now, if they're normal tensive, they don't get an ACE. But if they, it, like as if, uh, like when they have an AC ratio greater than three, if they're also hypertensive, they get an ACE. Okay, so an AC ratio greater than thirty, if they're hypertensive, they get an ACE. But if they're normal tensive, they don't. Now, if the AC ratio is greater than seventy milligrams per millimole, the first and foremost is a repeat is not needed. Okay, so if the initial AC ratio reading is greater than seventy. You don't need a repeat, and that's as per the current NICE guidance. This is equivalent to 100 milligrams per millimole if you were to do a PC ratio, which is equivalent to one gram of proteinuria in a 24-hour period. Now, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB should be given to all patients with an AC ratio of greater than 70 milligrams per millimole for renal protection, irrespective of the blood pressure, because we know that angiotensin II is central to the damage. Now, I suppose just to recap again, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, if the patient has an AC ratio of greater than 3 milligrams per millimole and they're diabetic, or the second thing is that if the AC ratio uh, is greater than 30 milligram per millimole and hypertensive, they get a, um, an ACE inhibitor. And the third situation is that if, if their uh, AC ratio is greater than 70 milligrams per millimole. So the next point just to discuss is that is CKD a disease of the elderly, or is it a reflection of the normal aging process? So we know from the TILDA study performed here in Ireland that the CKD diagnosis can be given to people, to up to 30% of people in their 70s. Okay, and we know it's present in about 11% of people in their 60s. Now the vast majority of these have mild CKD. Okay, so be wary so we always have to be wary of diagnosing a disease based on a test alone because given the normal aging phenomenon our renal function will, will decrease now the new thing with the one of the new changes to the nice guidance is this kidneyfailurerisk.com um uh, tool which 
you know, uh, which can be used in primary care. And we refer renal if there's a five-year risk of needing renal replacement um, therapy greater than 5%. Okay, so if the risk of is greater than 5%, we refer renal. Okay, so it's, 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 it is a useful tool. So we see the CKD stage 3 in greater than 65 year olds should not be diagnosed unless the EGFR is less than 45. Now this is in the absence of proteinuria or structural renal disease. I know I said at the very start of this talk, there's two main um, situations we see um, in primary care where we diagnose CKD. There are obviously a lot more where, uh, that, are, that don't occur as much um, in primary care. And we just to go over it, in patients who have a history of kidney transplantation, if there are any structural abnormalities detected by imaging, if there's any abnormalities detected by histology, or if there's any electrolyte or other abnormalities due to tubular disorders. The final one then to mention is the urinary sediment uh, abnormalities. But the ones I'm going to focus on, the ones that we see mainly are the ones, you know, persistent albuminuria, where you have a um, an AC ratio greater than 3 milligram per millimole or an EGFR less than 60 mils per minute on two occasions, three months apart. So with all this in mind, I'll go back again and I'll say that CKD stage 3 you know, in people who are over 65 years of age should not be diagnosed unless the EGFR is less than 45 in the absence of proteinuria and structural renal disease. And this was a review done in JAMA six years ago and made a lot of valid points. Because the reality is, the relevant, what is the relevance of an EGFR of 45 in an 80-year-old patient now classed as, a, as having chronic kidney disease? These people are likely to die from cardiovascular disease rather than to go on to dialysis. Okay, so, so and this is where the kidney failure risk uh, calculator is, is useful. The bottom line for me is that we have to be careful about prescribing in the elderly whether they're labelled as CKD or not because these are inherently more at risk of renal damage from drugs. So low GF, EGFR um, is a risk factor like a, a raised AC ratio for, for end-stage renal disease, cardiovascular disease and death, and we know that. So is it a disease in itself? Um, the, the, that's debatable. So unless the patient has proteinuria or progressive renal disease or structural renal disease, these all um, increase the risk. So I suppose rather than classifying them as CKD3A or 3B, you look at the EGFR trend over time and look for progression. They need at least three EGFR spread over at least three months for this. So just to talk more about CKD3A, in which patients have an EGFR between 45 and 60, you focus on the four risks. The risk of cardiovascular disease, the risk of acute kidney injury, the risk of medication toxicity, and then the risk of progression. Uh, and obviously then dialysis, you're thinking. So first of all, the risk of cardiovascular disease. So NICE in its 2021 guidance encourages weight loss and the DASH diet, you know, fresh food and fresh veg, so low salt. Patients with CKD have a similarly high risk of cardiovascular disease to those who have diabetes. So a combination of CKD and diabetes really does increase the risk. So you do not, you do not assess cardiovascular risk using the QRIS2 or other risk assessment tools if the patient has CKD. 
So that's a really important point. They need their cardiovascular risk factors aggressively managed. So they need the statin and they need tight blood pressure control. Okay, so that's the main thing. We Just to remember, aspirin is not used as primary prevention. So even though they're at an increased risk, aspirin is not, has not been shown. Uh, the, the risk outweighs the benefit. So just to talk about cardiovascular disease, atorvastatin, 20 milligrams to all patients with CKD stage 3, and that's as for the current NICE guidance. So to remind ourselves, those are patients who have an EGFR of 59 mils per minute and less. So statin, we know that statins were used to combine the endpoint of death and major vascular events by about 20%, and that was done in the Cochrane uh, about seven years ago now at this stage, and there was a review. If the EGFR is greater than 30 mils per minute, you can safely increase the dose of atorvastatin, we say from 20 milligrams up to 40 milligram, if the 40% fall in non-HDL cholesterol was not achieved. Okay, so, so just to remember, be mindful of that. So the first of all, I said, it's that, you know, for cardiovascular disease, you talk statin, you talk type blood pressure control. The type blood pressure control should be less than 140 over 90. So less than 130 over 80 if the AC ratio is greater than 70. Okay, so that's tighter again. So the second risk is the risk of acute kidney injury. So in patients with CKD3, um, they, do they end up do they end up needing dialysis very, very rarely? Okay. If they do end up needing dialysis, it's almost always because of an acute kidney injury from a combination of medications, so ACE inhibitors, ARBs, NSAIDs, we say lithium, diuretics, and also sepsis. They almost it, it is almost never due to gradual progression of kidney disease. So why is that relevant? It's relevant because CKD patients should be advised to hold these drugs if they develop a septic or dehydrating illness at home. So the sick date rules. So SGLT2, metformin, ACE, diuretics, antihypertensives, these should always, if the patient has a diarrheal illness or they're vomiting, they should phone their doctor or phone their pharmacist and ask should they hold these drugs, okay? So so little harm will come from missing one day's uh, blood pressure medication and it may avoid a severe, severe episode of acute kidney injury. And just always make sure to avoid NSAIDs uh, entirely. So risk of medication toxicity. So the, just to talk more about antimicrobials now. So there are certain antimicrobials have, you do not need dose adjustments. So doxycycline, fluclocticillin, phenoxymethylpenicillin. But if a patient has an EGFR of 44, that means that nitrofrantone long-term should not be used. It's actively contraindicated. should always be questioned anyway, is there a need for long-term nitrofrantone, but it should not, it's actually contraindicated with an EGFR of 44 or, or below. If they have an EGFR of 30, um, amoxicillin should be dose reduced from, we say, 500 milligram TDS to BD. Um, also, ciprofloxacin should be dosed once daily rather than twice daily. Claritromycin should be 250 milligram BD uh, rather than 500 milligram BD if the EGFR is 30. And then trimethoprim can be given a normal dose for three days, but then half normal dose because of the risk of hyperkalemia. So, so just to recap over that, EGFR of 30, if EGFR hits 30, you dose reduce amoxicillin, uh, ciprofloxacin, 
clarithromycin and trimethoprim. We always question why are we prescribing ciprofloxacin or, or clarithromycin? They are red antibiotics, aspirin antibiotic prescribing guidelines. That I. A cyclovir. What about a cyclovir? This actually also needs significant dose reduction. So normally for it, you know, we use it for varicella uh, and for zoster, and it's given at a dose of eight hundred milligrams five times a day. But if the EGFR hits twenty five, it's reduced reduced from five times a day to three times a day. So eight hundred milligram three times daily. What about metformin? Metformin. You reduce metformin to 500 milligram BD if the EGFR hits 44, and you stop it if the EGFR if the GFR hits 29. Allopurinol, the side effects is incre are, are increased in chronic kidney disease, so the maximum dose is 300 milligram in CKD3. Bisphosphonate should be avoided if the GFR is less than 30, and donosumab can be given instead, but like the bisphosphonate, should always be given. Um, you know. With, with vitamin D uh, plus or minus calcium. Any of the studies that were done in these medications were done in a quarter population that also received vitamin D and plus or minus calcium. What about metoclopramide? Metoclopramide, you need to have the dose if the EGFR is less than 45 because of the increased risk of extrapyramidal disorders. What about risk of progression? The vast majority of CKD3 patients remain very stable over time and they die from cardiovascular disease rather than going on to dialysis. So the general rule is that unless the patient has blood or protein in the urine, they won't develop progressive kidney disease. So you have to look for blood and uh, and protein in their urine. So the AC ratio and also to dipstick. Um, instead, so when a CKD patient experiences a rise in creatinine, it's almost always due to reversible hemodynamic factors and combined with medications then. So if, if for ACE inhibitors, for example, we always, when we're starting a patient on ACE inhibitor, we'll always tolerate a 30% uh, rise in creatinine or a 25% reduction in EGFR. We can tolerate that because we understand that's how ACE inhibitors work to reduce the the um, risk of, of um, progression of chronic kidney disease. So, and we know it is effective, but when the person has uh, you know, sepsis or they're dehydrated, these are one of the medications that can actually cause toxicity if you reduce the that renal blood flow, that afferent renal blood flow, now, which I would have explained in the other in in in, in other podcasts on, on ACE inhibitors, the hypertension podcast and, and video. So blood so what about if there's blood and protein in the urine? You're thinking vasculitis, glomerulonephritis, you know, the, the bloods they need then are the, the ANCAs and the, the, the ANAs and the anti GBMs. So how often do you need to monitor? You need to monitor uh, annually for those who have an EGFR of sixty or if they if it reduces to forty four, then they need um, um monitoring every six months, so that's the CKT three B. And then what about uh, if it goes to 15? So that, that means they need three monthly bloods, okay? So what is progressive uh, CKD? Progressive CKD is defined as a sustained fall in EGFR of 25% and change in EGFR category within 12 months. We say from a, an EGFR 3A or a, um, a CKD 3A to a 3B, so from an EGFR, of, uh, you know, of between 45 to 60 with a 3A to an EGFR of 30 to 45 with a 3B. Or else if, the, if there was a sustained fall in EGFR of 15 mils per minute within 12 months. 
So basically, sustained fall in EGFR of 25% or sustained fall in EGFR of 15 mils per minute within 12 months. So in order to reduce the risk of progression, you ensure the cardiovascular risk factors are tightly controlled. No smoking, statin and tight blood pressure control. Counsel on the risk of acute kidney injury and advise on sick day rules, you know, on the medicines to, to hold. Review medications to ensure all are dosed appropriately. And then you check for proteinuria to stratify risk progression. Just to go over the referral criteria. Now this um, a new guidance. So it's a f if there's a five-year risk of needing renal replacement greater than 5% using the kidney failure risk equation, which is kidneyfailurerisk.com. That's the first referral criteria. The second one is at stage four or uh, five CKD. So if there's an EGFR of less than 30. The third one is that if AC ratio is greater than 30 milligram per millimole plus hematuria. The next one is if the AC ratio is greater than 70 milligram per millimole, um, unless they're diabetic and on an ACE and have blood pressure control less than 130 over 80. Just remember that 70 milligram per millimole is equivalent to 100 milligram per millimole PCR, which is equivalent to one gram proteinuria, which is the threshold for stricter blood pressure uh, thresholds in, 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 um, in non-diabetics. And then the final referral criteria is that if the if there is accelerated progression, which is either sustained decrease in GFR of 25% or more and a change in category within 12 months, or it's sustained decrease in absolute value of EGFR of 15 mils per minute within 12 months. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope you um, found it beneficial and I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. Music